Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets, and you're tuning into Signal or Noise, the podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by Australia's top macro minds to explain how you can make money from a top-down perspective. If you're confused by the data or a little lost in the headlines, this show is for you. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our show and the Livewire Markets and Market Index websites. And a reminder that everything you're about to hear is information only and not advice. So with that said, let's go. Hello and welcome to our final edition of Signal Noise for 2023. Twelve months ago, we were talking about how stocks and bonds had their worst year in decades. And some strategists were predicting that 2023 would be another torrid year in markets and that only events like a strong reopening in China or rate cuts could stop it. But markets have an uncanny ability to surprise. The Chinese reopening has stumbled, the rate hikes still aren't done, and stocks outside the Magnificent Seven have actually mostly tread water. So what will 2024 bring? Let's bring in our final panel of the season. We've got Raz Bouyan, he is Principal and Portfolio Manager at Wavestone Capital. Delighted to have Dr. Jonathan Kearns as well, Chief Economist at Challenger Group and a 25-year veteran of the RBA. And of course, Deanna Messina, Deputy Chief Economist, our series regular. Hello everybody, thank you for joining me for the last one. Appreciate you being here. So we prefaced it all day by saying that 2023 was really defined by a lot of these small events in markets, small themes. So what would you all say has been the defining market narrative of 2023? And do you expect that narrative to continue influencing markets in 2024? And Deanna, I'll throw that to you first. Uh, To me, it's been the resilience in both the economy and I guess with that underlying fundamental strength in the economy, that's been translated through into share markets, mostly around the world. I mean, Australia has obviously underperformed other major global share markets. And as you said, in the US, it has really been well, it has been a lot of AI-driven stocks that have led the rally. Um, but even more broadly than that, I'd say the US share market has done much better than what we expect as well. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's hard to see it again continuing into the new year because uh, the interest rate tightening that we've had, which has been the strongest in decades around many places in the world, surely has to have more of an impact in the new year than it did in the current year. Yeah, no, absolutely. Jonathan, what's your defining market narrative of the year? Uh, well, I think it relates a little bit to the, um, you know, what we were just talking about there. And I think it was really short-termism. So you think about the number of major events that have occurred over the past year, they're really significant, you know, from geopolitical events and COVID and how the economies have been responding, significant financial market moves. And yet, despite all of that, the you know things the market seems to sort of bounce back after a short period of time it focuses on something that would have previously been a focus for for months and a few weeks later the market's moved on priced out and and looking for the next thing so you know i think that's been a big shock yeah and, and wasn't it just eight months ago we were talking about silicon valley bank credit suisse falling over and it's like we've all forgotten about yeah, it. yeah yeah you know bank failures just don't write a mention anymore and it's like oh banks failed okay the feds picked it up <laughs> off we go <laughs> Well, you know, lender of last resort, so on and so forth. Raz, what's been the defining market narrative of the year for you? Uh, for us, really, for the longest time, we've really struggled with rates being close to zero. Mm. So I'd say it's the re-emergence of the risk-free rate. And by that, what I mean is if Combank is paying you 5% on a one-year deposit or a two-year deposit, 
there's basically a risk-free rate, so you need a hurdle above that to take risk. And I think that that's been the defining moment of 2023 for us. Well, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. We'll, we'll have a chart later to, to show that. Is that one thing you expect to continue into 2024? Absolutely, because we've got the view that, uh, that what we've seen post the GFC is just an aberration. And what we're seeing going forward, you've seen deglobalization, you've seen issues around supply chain. And I think Phil Lowe at his uh, dinner, at his farewell dinner, basically called out that the inflation rate for the entire period that he was um, at the governor was um, 2.8 was the average. But I think the number was, the range was like minus 0.3 to 7.8. Mm -hmm. And we think that that's there to stay. One of the other big themes of 2023 emanated actually from the organisation where Dr Kearns used to work, the Reserve Bank. This year, interest rates went up in this country by another 125 basis points to the current rate of 4.35%. But the RBA still thinks inflation will only come back down to target at the end of 2025, which of course is two years from now. So for our last show of the season, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. And we thought we'd ask the panel to embrace almost their, their inner Michelle Bullock. So with that in mind, let's put this chart up. Here are the latest economic figures as released by the ABS, CoreLogic and the ASX. It covers economic growth, inflation, unemployment, house price growth and market pricing for where rates traders believe interest rates are going. And then what we have next to it are the forecasts for the end of 2024 as provided by the RBA statement on monetary policy. And again, you can see all those numbers on your screen or if you're reading The Wire, as some people like to do, you can read this table in The Wire that accompanies the show. So as we look at these numbers panel, uh, I've got a couple of quick fire questions basically for you. And Jonathan, I'll start with you. Would you vote for another rate hike at the February meeting with these numbers as they are, or vote for a pause? Indeed, Jonathan, signal for a hike or noise for pause? Signal or noise? Uh, so signal, yeah, yeah. I think, well, I think we actually need a lot more information that's contained in those tables because I think really whether we get a rate rise in February depends entirely on the inflation numbers and wage numbers. So the RBA is really at the edge of where they can afford to be. They need to have inflation slow much more significantly. Mm -hmm. And so any slight tick up in inflation, no matter what output is doing, means they will need to tighten because they're just at too great a risk of inflation expectations becoming baked in. We've already got wages growth that's pretty strong. So I think they were, you know, because the position that the RBA has taken of having a lower policy rate than is probably needed. Okay, all right, so Jonathan would signal for a rate hike. Raz, signal for a hike, noise for a pause. What would you do? I think it's noise because yep. I did see Michelle Bullock at the, at the last EBE presentation and she was incredibly hawkish. But a few weeks later, she's become super dovish. And obviously, we've seen the GDP print recently. I think it does depend on the inflation number, the fourth quarter inflation, which comes out in January. But I'd suspect that given earlier, I saw with all the corporates, I think things are pretty soft. So I think noise. Okay. Deanna, we've got one vote for signal, one vote for a noise. What way are you going to go on this? Let's take it out and say noise. Okay. <laughs> Two against one. Sorry, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be inside. Um, <laughs> look, I think the GDP data was actually a lot more telling than I thought it would have been. It actually, it was, it's a, the best guide to the broad sense of the economy, the breadth of what's going on in all the different parts, putting it together. And it was, uh, in my eyes, the consumer looks a lot weaker in that GDP print than I would have thought before. 
accumulated savings have been drawn down a lot more and the pace of that um, drawdown has occurred at a faster rate. Household income growth is extremely poor. The income tax take and the mortgage component of that is becoming a larger share of uh, is a negative driver of that income. I mean, yes, if the CPI surprised in January, we could see a hike. So I'd say the February meeting is still live, but based on where the inflation data has been coming in around the world in the past month and the, some of the forward-looking inflation indicators, I think that we're going to see a downside surprise to the December figures. And I think um, when we get the December monthly data, inflation data, it'll actually have a three in front of it. Okay, interesting. The three handle too, that's quite interesting. Okay, similar vein. Panel, do you see anything in these numbers? Again, it's limited, but uh, do you see anything in these numbers or these forecasts to signal a rate cut anytime next year? Jonathan, signal or noise? Uh, noise, no rate cut on that. Okay, so when if you say noise, no rate cut next year, are you saying that's a 2025 story mostly? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's probably right for Australia. Um, I mean, there's some chance that it occurs late in 2024, uh, but I think given how inflation is likely to be a bit sticky coming down. And the fact that the RBA just took policy to a less tight position than other central banks and, and relative to our own history too, uh, that there's, again, you know, we're probably gonna need those rates at a relatively tight, or the position that they are, which I don't think is that tight. I think they're gonna need to be there for a bit longer to get inflation out of the system. Okay, so noise for Jonathan because he thinks it's not going to signal a rate cut next any time next year. What do you think, Raz? Signal or noise? I think it's signal because if you, it depends on what happens in the world, to be honest. But again, going back to Diana's point on on the consumer, it does feel like things are quite tough for the consumer. So and historically, I think that's what's played through. But yeah, it's probably, but it's way back in the, it, it's the back end. It's probably towards the end of next year. Okay. Diana, what way are you going to go on this? I'm going to go signal, um, and I think we're going to have a few rate cuts next year. Okay, all right. We're actually going to hear why a little later. All right. We can all take off our RBA hats off now. We'll put our professional investor hats back on. So given these forecasts, given what you've all said, I'm curious to hear how you and your teams are approaching asset allocation ahead of next year. And maybe, Raz, I'll start that with you. We are obviously a quality growth investor, and to some extent, kind of the stuff feeds into what we do. We tend to own kind of global franchises, Australian global franchises, companies like James Hardy, Reliance, Macquarie, all of those businesses. So I think they're going to have much more resilient earnings than the domestic discretionary companies, for instance. Yeah. So the way we've positioned our portfolio is more barbelled. So you've got you know, the, obviously the global growth companies. We've got a lot of healthcare, which hasn't worked this year because of duration. Mm. But we think next year, the earnings resilience will kind of show through. And on the other side, we've actually been more long resources than we've ever been, largely because we're a big believer in decarbonization. And I think Australia is actually quite well positioned mm. for that, which goes back to the point that I was making that maybe the consumer is a bit weaker, but then you've got like the resource sector, which obviously the terms of trade improves. Generally speaking, Australia is actually in a really, really good place from a decarbonation standpoint. In terms of the companies that we own, the Australian kind of, uh, uh, that have large Australian earnings, it's typically the big companies. So it's West Farmers because of Kmart and Bunnings, it's Woolies, it's yeah. you know the, the big kind of more resilient kind of businesses. We've also had, a, one, one thing that we've noticed through reporting season and it's coming through is our view that you know, well-managed companies will do well in such a volatile environment. And we're seeing that like in spades right now, and we think that next year is gonna be more of the same. Okay, 
All right, well, we'll dwell on those uh, those points a little. We'll elaborate those points a little more. Deanna, when you sit in with the, the AMP asset allocation meetings, what kinds of conversations are you having ahead of next year? The difficulty, I suppose, is that you don't want to miss out on the rallies, which this year has proven to us that the share market can still rally despite all the rate hikes that we've had. And despite the fact that we still have quite a significant chance of recession next year, both here and in the US, you'd have to say that there is a lot of downside potentially for the share market. However, you don't really want to miss out on those rallies. So the teams are actually positioned quite neutrally at mm. this stage. Um, we like the international equity space better compared to Australia. And I think that that story is likely to play out again next year, a bit more favorable towards Australian bonds rather than global bonds. But you know, it could be a good time to start getting back into fixed income as well, given that yields have gone up so much. But I think it's really difficult to be highly convicted one way or the other, because we could still see a scenario next year where things tumble and we go into recession and the earnings outlook looks still positive in the US, but as Raz was saying, it doesn't look that positive here. Yeah, okay. Jonathan, when you sit in the asset allocation meetings at, at Challenger Group, what kinds of conversations are you having ahead of next year? So on the, the life company side, you know, we're the biggest provider of annuities in Australia. So you need very stable income for that. So our investment philosophy is essentially investing through the cycle. You know, we hedge all the currency risk, we hedge the interest rate risk. We're not picking those cycles. Um, but when I think about the sort of assets that we own, I think there's a, a pretty good chance that they actually perform fairly well next year. So you know, fixed income, you know, I think there, there is a reasonable chance that, well, I think we're probably actually already in a recession, but uh, I think that that could continue. So you know, fixed income could, and, and risky assets not so good. Um, and then also we, we own a lot of RMBS. And despite the fact that you know, we've had 425 basis points of, of rate rises, the unemployment rate's likely to rise, housing's actually performing pretty well. You know, and I think you know, even if housing prices come off, the fact is that there's almost 0% negative equity in Australia. The household sector's pretty well positioned and the banks standing behind that are even better positioned, the lenders, because you know, the, there's the, the borrower and then all that equity sitting between them. So the RMBS probably performed pretty well even through that market. Okay, interesting. Thank you, everybody. Uh, every panelist has already teased this a little bit, but we're gonna get into it now. It's time for our big signal. We asked each member of our panel to bring along one high conviction market call for 2024. They get their chance to stand on their soapbox a little bit and then Afterwards, we all engage in a little debate to see who agrees and disagrees. Deanna, let's start with you. You've already alluded to it. You've got a very out of consensus call in terms of what the RBA's rate path is next year. Talk us through this. Well, it was out of consensus when I initially thought to bring it, but it's kind of become not really consensus, but I guess the market's cut. Yeah, yeah, a little more. So our view is that we'll see rate cuts from the Reserve Bank from June of next year. So we'll get about three rate cuts from June up until the end of next year. The market at the moment, the money markets are pricing in about one rate cut from the RBA next year. But if you compare that to the Fed, for example, there's about five or six priced in. It did go down a little bit last night after the CPI. 
I mean, ultimately, our view is that the unemployment rate is going to rise next year. That support for the consumer in terms of income that was there this year is not going to be there anymore because you're going to get a higher unemployment rate. And the first six months, we'll see quite significant weakness for GDP growth. We see inflation surprising to the downside based on the, inter based on the international experience. We think the RBA's inflation forecasts um, will, be, will, will prove too high. And that will ultimately give the Reserve Bank room to cut interest rates because a 4.35% cash rate we don't think is sustainable uh, given the amount of household debt that the average consumer holds in Australia. Uh, so that's ultimately it. I mean, um, most people, I suppose, are of the view that inflation is going to remain high in Australia and it, the RBA won't want to cut interest rates because of that. Um, but our, our view is kind of the opposite. Okay, interesting. Jonathan, given what you said earlier, I was going to ask whether you agree with that signal or whether you think it's noise, but given what you said earlier, I think I know the answer to this. Good guess. Um, I guess give us the counter-argument then in that case, if you think it's noise. Well, so I mean, I think there's a fair part of inflation that's already baked in for next year. So we have pretty strong wage growth because there's wage agreements for the coming 12 months that have been in response to the high inflation, the tight labour market at the time. So we've got strong wage growth pitched in. Uh, we have pretty weak productivity growth. And so, you know, we, we can already pick some bits of inflation that are going to remain pretty strong. So rents are strong for a period of time. Services inflation is pretty strong given the labour market performance. So I think, you know, inflation is more likely to be more sticky rather than surprise on the downside. And so I think that drives things, which just means despite the fact that the economy weakens, the RBA won't be able to cut rates because what really matters at this point is more inflation rather than employment. Yeah, okay, interesting. Raz, give the, the, the equities view on this one. Do you agree with Deanna Signal or are you more in Jonathan's camp of, of noise? Probably close it. I, uh, I think market pricing of one cut next year is probably appropriate. It mm -hmm. all depends, like I said, on the external sector. The only difference that we probably have is we are less bearish on China. And so that could also help the domestic economy, even though the consumer stays weaker. But I'm, I'm with you, Jonathan, in terms of the stickiness of inflation, given the wage wages coming through with the lag. But that could change pretty quickly. We're already seeing hours work kind of come off. So you're kind of seeing signals there where things are softening quite quickly. You've seen retail sentiment being quite poor. And our, again, our liaison with Black Friday and, and what's going on pre-Christmas feels retail's kind of really struggle. And that ultimately comes back to how stretch the consumer is. The only other caveat I'd put is obviously we've got the stage three tax cuts coming through in July. And that could, in addition to the fact that China might actually look a bit better, you get the stage three tax cuts and, and we are the lucky country. So we, we might get away with it. I love that. Very patriotic spirit, Ras. Thank you very much. Um, Jonathan, let's move to, to your call now. Um, you think that US bond yields have peaked. Tell us why. Well, so, I mean, I think the US has been much more aggressive in responding to inflation. You know, interest rates are obviously higher there, 5.5%, and the Fed moved higher at an earlier stage as well. So we've seen a fair amount of disinflation coming through in the US. Uh, productivity is actually quite strong in the US, and so even though wages were a little bit strong, uh, that was compensated for by productivity, which is why we're starting to see disinflation coming through. So we're seeing the, you know, the market pricing in quite a few cuts, as Deanna was mentioning, you know, five cuts or so, depends on morning or afternoon, what time you're looking at it. <laughs> but, you know, when we typically see when the Fed funds rate peaks, 
the 10-year peaks either just before or at that plateau at the top. And so I think we're there. The, so we've seen that peak in the Fed's funds rate, sorry, in the Fed's funds rate and therefore in the 10-year yield. You know, the 10-year yield could bounce a little bit, but I think we're not going back to the, the 5% rate. So, you know, it's a great time for fixed income. Speaking of short-termism, when you're looking the morning or the afternoon pricing, um, Raz, what do you think? Do you agree with Jonathan's signal? Um, I think they I'm not so sure about the cuts, to be honest, because uh -huh. the US is in fine form. Like, it's done incredibly well, and I think it's to do with the fact that the fiscal deficit's running pretty high. The next year is going to be interesting because obviously you've got the election in November and I think um, Powell's obviously a Republican. He's got two years to go. I think he wants to get inflation inside the band or not his band, but to around the 2%. So I'm a bit, I mean, 150 basis points, which, the, which has been priced into markets before last night's uh, CPI data, I think was insane. So I feel like it's peaked. I agree with that with Jonathan. But I'm not so sure that they're going to cut this quickly because all this argument that the real rate is going up and is being restrictive, but that just means that we're going to have um, a recession. Sure. So absent a recession, I think um, it's going to be higher for longer. Okay, interesting. Deanna, what view do you have on this? You agree with Jonathan Signal? Probably, but in the short term, I guess as Jonathan was saying, yields could still bounce around a lot because in the past few months we've seen, I mean, the Fed hasn't been hiking, but the 10 years still reached 5% in the US, and that was just based off concerns around the fiscal situation, high, high yields in Japan as well, which led generally just high global yields. And I still worry that we could still see, you know, the shutdown risk in January, yields could go higher again. I also think that, I mean, the US could still hike, the, the US Fed could still hike again because they're, they're, the way that monetary policy works there, it doesn't really impact anyone with a mortgage because everyone fixes their mortgage there for 30 years. 95% of lending there is fixed. So the impact is really to small businesses or to the new lending market and just generally the increase to um, overall borrowing costs. But their services inflation numbers that came out overnight were still pretty elevated. They were up by 0.5% over the month. If you annualize that, you know, that's close to it's close to 5%. I still think inflation will come down, but there is still the risk of another hike. And the market pricing for all those cuts is just too aggressive. I mean, I think the Fed will cut next year, but especially in the second half of next year, but not to the extent that market's pricing. So in the short term, we could still see, I think yields have gone down too much and now they're going to correct upwards. Okay, interesting. Thank you for that. Raz, let's hear about your call. Obviously, you're an equities manager with a, with a, with a little bit of a, a top-down lens. You brought along a call around aggregate earnings. So yes. uh, tell us about this. Yeah, so just following through from all the conversations we've had mm. um, on the macro kind of situation in Australia, there's a reasonable chance that the domestic consumer is going to be pretty hard. And so any company that's actually exposed to uh, domestic earnings is going to struggle because what happened over the course of the last two years is as inflation came through, most of the companies managed to put through pricing. The market structures for most corporates in Australia are actually quite good. Like you've got two supermarkets, you've got three insurers, you know, you've got four banks, all of that stuff kind of has actually helped companies to kind of um, take kind of onus of the costs. Mm -hmm. But what's gonna happen in the out years, as we talked about the fair work kind of um, decision on wages at 6.25%, that's kind of still rolling through as inflation's coming off. So we got this situation over the course, at least in the first half, and it will be a tale of two halves. In the first half, we think that revenues will probably slow because inflation's coming off, yet the costs keep going. So companies that are not good at managing productivity 
and in the retail sense where they employ a lot of people, if, they're not, if they don't have a good rostering system, and given the leverage in retail, I think it's going to be pretty tough. So our view is aggregate earnings for the, for the overall market slower. But within that, I think the domestic cyclicals and the domestic kind of companies will struggle. Deanna and Jonathan, I understand that neither of you are stock pickers, so I'm not going to ask you stock picking questions. But with what Raz is saying, and obviously you both have backgrounds covering the economy and the role of the economy for that matter on earnings, would you agree with Raz's view that next year will be potentially difficult for Aussie corporates? And maybe Deanna, I'll start there with you. Well, if you look at earnings growth, that's certainly what it seems like. Mm. And uh, to me, I think that uh, the Australian economy will underperform other peers like the US just because of the sensitivity of the consumer to debt yeah, and okay. interest rates. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Jonathan, what about you? Uh, well, I agree with Deanna that Australia will underperform, but for the reason that I think interest rates aren't going to be being cut as fast here as they are elsewhere. Um, so that also then brings into what happens with the Aussie dollar. So that provides some strength for the Aussie dollar, which you know probably goes to helping some of the, the Australian entities that are Offshore, offshore yeah. you know, the, the, the Australian economy being weaker, the rest of the world may be starting to show a bit more life um, as rates come, come down. So the Aussie dollar plus the relative strength of the uh, different economies, I think does point to that offshore element. All right, really interesting. Thanks everybody. It is now time for our final segment. It's time for Charts to Watch. We ask our panelists to bring along one chart that gives you, our audience, insight into how a professional investor thinks about the markets. And just because it's the last show, I'm not going to change formality, and I'm going to start with Deanna. Um, this is sentiment versus U.S. shares. Walk us through this chart and what it says to you as an investor. So this is a bit of a technical chart uh, mm. around changes in the U.S. share market and peaks and troughs in investor sentiment. So when investor sentiment is really positive, that is actually a bearish signal for stocks. And when investor sentiment is very negative, it can actually be a bullish sentiment signal for stocks. So. In this current um, episode that we've had, we did have a drawdown in the share market. And I guess what this chart is trying to show me is that share market um, optimism from investors has not reached a bottom yet. So to me, that signals that we could still see another drawdown in the US share market because we're not at levels that would normally be associated with an extreme. Investor sentiment um, could still have further to go down and then you know we could see that bullish signal sometime next year but I just think that there's another risk for the share market to have another leg leg down in the new year. Okay thank you for bringing that along. Jonathan let's come to you I think you were talking about productivity a little earlier we like to talk about how we're different in this country to everybody else this might be a chart that actually shows that walk us through the chart that you brought along please. So I mean this is taking a slightly more structural and longer run perspective mm -hmm. to what I think is going to be mattering um, and it really comes down to we have weak productivity growth in Australia. The RBA has been discussing and forecasting that productivity growth bounces back to around 1%. And that's what enables them to be, feel that that 3.5% wages growth that they're getting to by the end of 2025 is consistent with coming to 2.5% inflation. But fundamentally what's driving productivity growth is really technological improvements, and maybe some of how you use technology, how many people are working, capital deepening these things. Over time, we've seen productivity growth across the OECD countries declining. You know, and this is over the time period when we've seen you know, computers coming in, being widely used, the internet, mobile phones, all these things that we've been looking for. I mean, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist, 
solo quip that you see computers everywhere but in the productivity numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, so people are hanging out for AI to be the next thing that drives productivity growth. I think until we see it, I, I don't have that confidence there. So given where productivity growth in the rest of the world, which is being driven by technology, you sort of say, well, if the rest of the world was having productivity growth of half a percent prior to the pandemic, mm. isn't that a better indicator of what the underlying rate of technological improvement incorporating all of the other things? And so, you know, I would think as, as a first guess, that's where Australian productivity can probably bounce back to unless we have some major reform. So if half a percent productivity growth, if we've already baked in wages growth of up to three and a half percent over the next couple of years, and it's stronger for the next you know, year and a half, then I think you know, inflation remains a bit sticky. And so interest rates have to remain above what you think is being a neutral level. It's a fascinating chart. Thank you for bringing that along. Really appreciate it. Raz, let's come to your chart. You were talking China, you were talking resources. This was the story that was supposed to kickstart 2023, and then it didn't. Walk us through this chart that you brought along. Yeah, thanks, Hans. And, and yeah, like, again, I, I've basically been following China for a long, long time, largely because as an Aussie investor, you know, you're, as a trade-exposed economy with China as the largest trade partner, you've got to know what's going on there. And whilst you can read a lot of propaganda in the Western press about how they're basically, they got, they're indebted, they're kind of, everything's wrong with China. The reality, as I said, is the iron ore price is hanging around the 130, which is obviously something's going on. And there's kind of quite a bit of activity. What that chart essentially shows is, again, going, when we, in developed markets, we talk about uh, GDP, we talk about real GDP. I think in developing countries, which are far more kind of industrial, you've got to look at nominal GDP. And what I've used there is a proxy for nominal GDP, which is basically the, the real GDP plus the PPI as opposed to the CPI. Because which the CPI- produce, Which is producer price inflation. Yeah, as opposed to the consumer price index. The consumer price index is quite contaminated in China because it's got pork prices and whatever, it's not adjusted. Yep. But that number effectively shows you, I've drawn the red line because China likes to draw red lines about everything. <laughs> and typically, if you go back in time, you can see that the last in 20, um, that's 2009, which is the last time you had a big stimulus, which is when obviously the GFC happened. And you, you know, so the government basically reacted because the government of China if essentially cares a lot about employment because employment means that the party is in power. Similarly, if you look at the last time they had trouble again was seven years later in 2015, 2016, and they actually um, kind of, again, stimulated. You had the kind of urban shantytown redevelopment and stuff. And I feel like they're talking a lot about kind of shantytown redevelopment, stabilizing the property market. We're seeing a lot of kind of noise, but we're not actually seeing activity. But I feel to some extent that the Chinese government basically feels now is the time. And so going into next year, I think that you'll see that the government will stimulate to some extent because the alternative is basically going into debt and deflation. And that's not what you want to see in a country next door, which has got 1.4 billion people. And on that note, that's where we're going to leave it for Signal and Noise for 2023. A big thank you to our panel, to Raz Buyan, to Dr. Jonathan Kearns, and especially to Diana Messina, who's been our resident economist on this show since day one. We couldn't do it without her. We couldn't do it without all the people on the panel who come on the show. And thank you very much to all of them. A big thank you as well to a bunch of people that you never get to see on camera. But they are the reason the show looks so good. So to Theo, Izzy, Gideon, who's behind the camera today, Liz, and to Eddie and Tace as well, who booked so many of the guests on this show. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the applause as well. Uh, listen, most importantly, 
thank you for watching and for your support this year. We'll be back in February, but in the meantime, you can watch the Outlook series on the Livewire website and on our YouTube channel over the next few weeks, and it'll feature interviews and written pieces with Australia's most respected money managers. Have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. We'll see you next year.